If you've got your Bibles, turn over to Luke chapter 5, Matthew, Mark, Luke chapter 5, and let's bow for a word of prayer, and then we're going to dive in. Heavenly Father, uh, it is an honor to be here in your house this morning with worship, uh, just everybody pulling together, doing everything they can uh, every week to get this place set up uh, so that we can experience your love and your mission for our lives. And Lord, as we get into developing friendships, Lord, um, I just pray that you'll be with me. And uh, Lord, as, uh, as I preach this word, Lord, that everything that we do, we bring honor to you. And it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. We're in this series uh, that is so much more than a series called One Life. And basically, it is an opportunity for us as a church body to focus on those individuals in our life that need Jesus. It's as easy as that, that you begin praying and focusing on people, friends, family, that need to experience the hope of Jesus Christ. And it really comes from developing friendships. And that's what we're going to get into today. I love the book, Walk Across the Room by Bill Hybels. And this is what he says, and I love this. The longer you walk with God, the more open your arms become. Instead of clenching tightly to a small circle of insiders, you throw out your arms, opening them up to those outside the circle who need to come in. And as your arms grow wider in worship, they correspondingly grow wider in acceptance. And that's so true. The church is never called to be a holy huddle. We're not called to just come in and care for one another, and that's it. We need to care for one another, but we need to always remember outside these doors, we have friends, and we have neighbors, and we have folks that need Christ. And so the church is always opening up their arms saying, we accept you, we love you, because that's the way Christ lived his life, and that's what we're called to do. We are called to reach out to those in need. If you remember, uh, just a, a couple weeks ago, and we're going to talk a little bit later about this, but the panel discussion, I learned so much a couple weeks ago. And one of the things I learned was how important it was to be accepting and to be respectful. And when I think about friendship and how important building friendship is, I keep thinking about bridges. So I'm going to ask you what I asked first service, and we must have had two, three hundred folks. They just threw their hands up. They love this question. So I want you to be enthusiastic. Don't look at me like I'm not answering a question in church. So I want to know how many of you broke at least five of the Ten Commandments. Raise your hand. I'm, that's not the question. I, mean, I just want, want to use stunned silence. Here's the question. What's the most memorable bridge you've ever crossed? Just yell it out. The most memorable bridge you've ever... Just yell it out. Which one? Oh, where's that at? Coronado Beach. Oh, wouldn't you love to be there? Oh, Coronado. Okay. Scott, and where's that one at? Okay. How many have ever crossed that one in Tampa? That's the scariest. That is one of the scariest bridges that I've ever... I loved it when I crossed it with Maria. I'm always like, hey, you know they, that bridge collapsed, and I always give her the year, and she never likes that. So anyway, <laughs> another bridge, another memorable bridge. Yeah, which one? TZ. TZ. Now, where's that one at, Don? Okay. Okay, Europe. That's impressive. Okay. Has anybody been over this famous bridge? It crosses over Jack's Defeat Creek. Anybody been over that one? That one makes my heart pound. I just go, what is Jack's Defeat Creek? Okay. My most memorable bridge experience, it was actually on my bucket list, was I got a chance to walk over, I've done it twice now, the Brooklyn Bridge. And if you've never done that, 
you need to do that. It's, a, it's such a powerful experience. It was completed in 1883. Over 30 men died uh, building the Brooklyn Bridge. When it opened in 1883, at midnight, this is awesome, at midnight, they allowed everybody to cross the bridge for a penny. And then they charged them another penny on the way back. You know, it is in New York. But anyway, they, they talk about how amazing that bridge was that literally took and really started to begin to change the world because all of a sudden New York became one city. Uh, you know, our greatest city became one city. Bridges do that. That's what friendship does. Friendship allows us to build bridges that eventually we hope will draw people into the presence of Christ. This morning, we're going to look at the bridge of friendship that we have to share with others in Christ. If you've got your scriptures, first of all, we're going to talk about developing friendships by moving toward the mess. Now think about that. We begin building these bridges, and we begin developing friendships when we move towards the mess. So here's the story. It's found in Luke chapter 5, starting in verse 17. One day, Jesus, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law who had come from every village of Galilee, from Judea, from Jerusalem, were sitting there. And the power of the Lord was present for him to heal the sick. So here's what's going on. Uh, the words of Jesus now are starting to make a huge impact in the region. People are talking. I mean, here's this simple man from Nazareth, a carpenter's son, but his words are so profound that multitudes of people are landing wherever he lands. They want to hear him teach. But on this day, it isn't just his teaching. What do we know? Jesus has the power to heal. And so this is the game changer. And so all of the leaders were trying to, I believe, corner Jesus, and they all land in this one location and nearly every scholar that I read said they, they believed that this was the home of Peter. And so they, they all show up in this home, and they've just jammed this house. And if you were filming a movie, this is a great way they film this particular story, is it gives you the outside parameters of the story. Jesus shows up. People from all over the region show up in this house. But then it immediately shifts to a smaller, more intimate story. And the story lands on this paraplegic, this, this guy who's just been paralyzed. We don't know how long. And he has four friends. And when they hear that Jesus is coming into town, do you see what their response is? They immediately think of their friend. They immediately overcome their curiosity and their comfort, and they go to their friend. Now, here's what I love. They didn't go to their buddy and go, you know what? I got some great news. Jesus is in the area. So we're going to we're going to go spend some time with Jesus, and we're going to let him know how bad you are. And we're going to pray for you. And we're going to encourage Jesus, hopefully, to come to this region. Now, they could have said that, but what did they do instead? Hey, we're going to carry the mat that you're laying on, and we're going to do whatever it takes to get that mat to Jesus. Now, I'll tell you, you talk about moving towards the mess, they move towards the mess. Can you imagine that mat? Just physically, how, how pathetic that mat must have been, how stinky that mat was. And do you think it had custom handles that they could pick it up and move this guy? No. But they were going to do whatever it, it would take to get him in the presence of Jesus. I mean, we need to have the same heart that says, I'm willing to develop a friendship by moving towards the mess. It's interesting. Barna did a survey a few years ago 
of 18 to 29-year-olds, and they ask one very simple question, why are you walking away from the church? You want to know what the number one answer is? 31%, because church is boring. Now, think about that. Church is boring. Now, let's be brutally honest. How many of you have ever gone to church and you've been bored? Raise your hand. You should all be raised. I mean, I get bored when I'm preaching. I mean, I, I, I get tired of myself. I mean, there are just times that church is boring. I mean, I can remember growing up and nearly falling asleep, and my mother in her loving way would pinch that raw part of my elbow. Do you ever have that? I'm like, that's not the love of Jesus. You know, I mean, why? Because church is, sometimes it's boring. But you know why that is such a, is a crazy comment? Because somehow, somewhere, people think church is only one hour on a Sunday morning. You know what church is? It's when you walk out the door. And it's when you walk towards the mess in people's lives. And it's when people walk towards your mess. Now, let me tell you, that's not easy. Because we all know this, life is extremely messy. I love the fact that they were coming from all over this region to hear Jesus, and they had no idea that Jesus was going to get into a messy situation himself. But that's what Christ does for all of us. Have you ever noticed, as a minister, this happens a lot, uh, especially over the years, like somebody will call me in a crisis, and when I get there, you know, because you don't schedule a crisis, here's the first thing they say, which is odd. They, they never mention the crisis first. They'll always say, hey, excuse my house. It's really messy. You ever had that happen? And if somebody shows up unexpectedly at our home, I always say the same thing. I'm so sorry my, my wife doesn't have the house picked up. I mean, it's really, it's really a mess, you know. But isn't it interesting? That's the very first thing we think about is, is my house messy? I mean, we are all messy, aren't we? And not just our houses, our lives at times are messy. We go through seasons in our life when life is messy. I heard this story, and I absolutely love it. There was this beautiful old dog that uh, this neighbor uh, talked about that just randomly showed up, uh, and, and his, you could tell that the dog was loved and well-fed, big belly, but exhausted. And so she opened the door, and that old dog just walked right in, down the hallway, collapsed, and took an intense nap for an hour. And this went on for several days. And finally, she put a note in the collar because <laughs> it had a collar, but it didn't have any ID. And she put on the note, I just want to know who the owner is of this very sweet dog. He shows up at my house every day about the same time, and he takes a nap, and then he, he leaves. The next day, <laughs> she got a letter back in the collar and I want you to hear what the letter said. This sweet old dog lives in a home with six children. And two are under the age of three. He's trying to catch up on his sleep. But listen to the last sentence. Can I come with him tomorrow? <laughs> How many of you ever felt like the old dog? Am I? Yeah. This week, maybe. You're like, I, I, can I go there? You know. We all have these seasons, and here's the bottom line, where life is really messy. And I think we need to fess up sometimes and say, life is messy. And that's what developing a relationship is all about. It's saying, man, I am willing to move right towards your life, and let's get beyond talking about weather and sports, and let's get into what's really going on in your life. And I'm willing to love you, even though there's a mess, because you know what? There'll be a time in my life 
when my life is messy and I'm going to need some friend to step up towards me. That's what friendship is all about. When I was in sixth grade, very transformational moment happened. <laughs> you know that's a lie. But anyway, it was a transformational moment. Um, uh, there was a girl that I had a crush on, and her name was Joan Conroe. And I, I had a crush on her because every day we'd play softball, and she was the only girl that played with all the guys. And honestly, she was a better hitter than me. So I don't even know why I liked her, but I had this crush on her. But I was waiting for the perfect time to go with her. Do you guys remember the phrase, will you go with me? Anybody? You got to be old. Even I didn't know where we were going, but you were going somewhere. You know, so, and so I thought, okay, I'm going to wait till the very end of the school year and right before we head out into summer. And when we exchange the yearbooks, I'm going to tell her how I really feel. But first of all, I'm going to let her tell me how she feels. So I'm going to let her write in my book, which it's, it's obvious she likes me, you know, and then I'm going to write back. So I wrote, handed her the book, and she took quite a while to write this. And I'm like, oh, this is going to be a great summer, you know. But here's what she wrote, very, very heartfelt. There's a gold ship and there's a silver ship, but there's no ship like friendship, which is get lost. You know, I mean, I, I'm not dumb. <laughs> But I want you to think about how vital friendship is for every one of us, what friendship really means. And more than anything else, if you think about the friends that have had the greatest impact in your life, who are they? They're the friends that know you the way you really are. They know about the messes. And you know about their messes, they know about your messes, and they love you in spite of all of that. That's what a friend is. And those are the friendships that we need to develop in our lives. I want to share with you a video this morning of the impact of investing in someone, even when their lives seem to be a little messy. As a 16-year-old girl, there was a family in my life, and I call them the Carmichael family. Dick, Martha, that was mom and dad, Kathy, who became my best friend, and the three boys, Randy, Steve, and Mark. They invited me into their home after Kathy and I became best friends, and I was there almost on a daily basis. I was a rough kind of kid from the other side of town. Smelled like cigarette smoke, I'm sure, and there's a lot of alcoholism in my home. And they just welcomed me in and made me a part of their family. They were the hands and feet of Jesus. I would not be a Christian today, probably, if it weren't for them. I would probably be lost. I would have followed the path of my folks as well as other family members. And I would not have been where I am today without them. I think of the ripple effect that the Carmichael family had on us. And I think of my son who is now the part-time youth minister at the West Side and the lives that he is impacting. And then I think of my daughter who is raising her daughter to love the Lord. I think of my husband who became a Christian because of me, and I became a Christian because of them. You can affect lives for generations by reaching out to others, by sharing Christ with others, by opening your home to others, by taking time. I would just strongly encourage you to make an impact on the kingdom by the little things, because that's what this family did for me, just the little things. A meal, a cheeseburger at McDonald's on Friday night. Every Friday night we did that. So it's the little things, I think, that make the big difference. I love what Michelle said, especially about uh, when you begin to reach out to others in a relationship and that relationship gets deeper, uh, there is always a ripple effect. 
And that's really the second thing I want to hit is that we deepen our friendships by continuing to just show up. We just continue to show up. Let's continue on with verse 18 of that text in Luke 5. Some men came carrying their paralytic on a mat, and they tried to take him to the house to lay him before Jesus. And then when they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof, they lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd right in front of Jesus. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said, Friend, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, Who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus knew what they were thinking, and he asked, Why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to you, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up. Take your mat and go home. And immediately he stood up in front of them. And he took what he had been lying on. And he went home praising God. And everyone was amazed. Now from a theology point of view, there are three, three things that took place there. All of those things are very important. First of all, Jesus forgave him of his sin. In verse 20, the friends drop him in front of Jesus, and the very first thing Jesus says is, your sins are forgiven. Now, think about that phrase and why Jesus would have done that. And here's just an observation that I have, and it's a speculation, but I'll just share it with you. I believe the sin that this guy was carrying in his heart was probably a grudge. I think he, he may have been mad at God, but he was definitely mad at his surroundings. Imagine every day knowing, and I'm not going to walk today, and, and I've been reduced to a beggar. And I, I hear the comments. People say there's something wrong with my family for me to have this handicap in my life. And I think Jesus is saying, listen, before I heal you physically, uh, there's something spiritually we need to deal with. You're forgiven. You can let that go now. And some of you this morning, that may be where you're at. You're thinking, boy, if there's just something physically that could happen, my life would be so much better. And maybe God is tugging at your heart saying, no, 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 don't worry about the physical yet because there's something in your heart you need to deal with. And he forgave him. Second thing he did is he read their minds, verse 22. Don't you think that blew them away, the Pharisees, the leaders, while they're whispering, trying to trap Jesus? He said, oh, time out. Hey, I know your heart. I've read your mind. And you're so consumed with the fact that I, I offered forgiveness that you have no idea what's getting ready to happen. And then it happened. Jesus healed him. And he picked up his mat, and the people were amazed. Man, what a moment. Think about those friends and the demonstration of their love and the faith that they had in this guy. Think about how remarkable that is that they stepped out and they did whatever it took to get their friend in the presence of Jesus. When they get to the house and there's all these people, which meant now there's all these excuses not to do this, their attitude was, if we have to dig under the house, we'll do that. If we have to go up and above, we'll do that. If we have to go through, we'll do whatever it takes. But he's going to see Jesus today. Man, he is going to be in the presence of Jesus. If this is the only shot that he's got, we're going to take that shot. They had so much faith. 
And Jesus said that. I, I love this. If you look at Hebrews 11.1, 1, it says, Now faith is the confidence in what we hope for, the assurance of what we do not see. There are so many things in life that we put our faith in that we cannot see. But there are these amazing moments when we can see faith. Straight up, we see faith in others. And it is an amazing thing when we see faith demonstrated. He's called us to be faithful. Faith at times is extremely visible. Faith is powerful. Because here's the thing about faith. All of us need to know that somebody has faith in us. Because there are times we don't have faith in ourselves. I've shared before that I'm the youngest of seven. And when I was born, my mom was 42. And so there's a nine-year differential to my next sibling. And then I have a brother who's going to be 81. So weird setup, you know? So the sister next to me, her name is Linda. And I'm not exaggerating. My sister Linda is probably the most selfless human being I have ever been around in my life. And she's like Mother Teresa. So you can Im imagine Mother Teresa raising little Johnny. Little low Johnny, you know, you know, very easy temperament. I mean, I don't know how she survived, to be honest with you. But she just has always loved me. And here's what I always knew. She always, <laughs> always had faith in me. And there were plenty of times I did not have faith in myself. And just a couple nights ago, we caught up. And we're sitting at Dairy Queen, and we're just sharing life, and I'm sharing frustrations and hurts and how hard ministry is. And, and uh, I just brutally, I said, Linda, there are days I just, I wish I was doing anything else. And she's always like, oh, no, you're not good at anything else. You got to do that. You know, you, and, and I knew it was going to happen the next morning. Um, I get a text, and she just simply says, um, I'm praying for you. You're at the top of my list. She has so much faith in me. And you know, when we have faith in others and they have faith in us, that changes things. And so all of us today, you need to realize the greatest bridge of a relationship you can build is just let people know you have faith in them. You really, truly have faith in them. It makes all the difference. I want to close with Something to me that is, is it's unimaginable, uh, but it's, it's something that takes place all the time. We've been talking about bridges. Uh, this is a, an interesting statistic. Do you know the bridge where they have the most suicide attempts and suicides? Anybody want to guess? The Golden Gate Bridge. And so people who live in San Francisco that cross that bridge on a regular basis, they always have their eye out because they've, they've heard and they've seen too often a car stop, and somebody gets out, and they crawl up over that railing, and they jump. And if they see a car stop, immediately people are trained, call 911. You ever wonder what happens when that call goes out? Well, it lands into a gentleman named Sergeant Kevin Briggs. He's the first responder for suicides. And uh, he has been a part of 200 suicide attempts, and only two people have ever jumped. And if you go on TED Talks, you'll find uh, an amazing story. His name is uh, Kevin Berthea. Kevin Berthea, March 11, 2005, had got to the bridge and had decided uh, life would be better without him. And he crawled on the other side of that bridge, and he was ready to jump. 
And Sergeant Kevin Briggs showed up. He said, now most people want to know, what did he say that caused me to reach out my arms and decide not to take my life? And he said, for an hour and a half, he really didn't say hardly anything. He just let me talk. But he listened so intently for a glimmer of hope. And I mentioned that my, my little daughter, one year old, would be better without me. And that's when he spoke. He said, no, not today. You're going to be there for her birthday. She needs her dad. And if nothing else, that's what you need to cling to. We're going we're gonna to be here for you, but you need to be there for her. And he put his arms up, and he said, he saved my life. Eight years later, they had a reunion, and that's the very first thing he said. I want you to know that day on that bridge, you saved my life. That's why we're here. We're not here to play church. We're here to build bridges. We're here to reach out to folks, and we all have them in our lives who are just basically hanging on. And they need to know that we have faith in them and that we have faith in Christ.